Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's interesting, France, so many restaurants have complained to me over the years. These food delivery companies take too much money from our revenue. And the reality of it is that if the grub hubs of the world hadn't existed through this pandemic, I don't know how these restaurants would even still be open today. They're able to at least capture some revenue. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is Marcus Limonis, businessman, philanthropist, host of the CNBC show, The Profit. Marcus, welcome. This is a real treat for me. I am a big fan of The Profit. I think I'm a bigger fan of yours being a Chicago resident for 15 years. So we're tied. We're tied. Oh, I, I doubt that. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. You as well. In this extraordinarily difficult and very challenging year that has caused so much hardship in our city and around the world, you're launching two programs to try and help out restaurants fighting for survival and, and also people struggling to put food on the table during the pandemic. Why don't you tell us about these programs, how they came about? Yeah, so I've been a fan of local businesses for years and on the profit, so going into our eighth year now. We've gone into over 100 businesses, but I think 2020 is one of those years that has really rattled me, rattled me and quite frankly, has rattled everybody else. And a couple of months ago, I woke up one morning and I was a bit weepy in an odd way. I'm normally a pretty strong and stoic person. And I said to my wife, I'm really scared. And she said, What's, what are your thoughts? And I said, I'm reading all these articles about these restaurants that just quite frankly, aren't going to make it one after another, downtown Michigan Avenue, across the suburbs, closing one after another. You couple that with the terrible food insecurity problem that we as a nation have, and I think it's been really accelerated because of COVID. We have folks either for financial reasons, health reasons, or pandemic reasons, can't access the kind of quality, substance, food that they need. And so in trying to solve that problem, at least in my own universe, not you know nationally, decided to really come up with a campaign and money that would allow these the money to go to these small local restaurants to drive their business, create some awareness, give them some traffic, give them some cash, and in turn, ask them to serve those that are food insecure. And I don't think I've ever in my 47-year life ever thought about hunger and business survival more than I ever have. And I know that I'm not unique in this situation. All of us are thinking about it, but I've been very blessed in my life and feel like if I don't do something, at least in my own communities or in the communities that I'm involved in, 
then I'm just talking instead of doing. So the program you call the Plating Change will work with Grubhub to give back to World Central Kitchen, supporting its restaurants for the People program. You donate 500000 through your Lemonade Foundation to help the restaurants in these major cities, including Chicago. And then you're also donating another 500000 to charitable organizations that fight food insecurity. Why don't you explain how these two programs work and how they work yeah. together? So I wanted to fire start this whole idea with a million dollar contribution in a part. And through a simple tweet, I reached out and said, listen, Grubhub, Uber Eats, DoorDash, I need your help. And within 24 hours, I heard back from Grubhub and we had a couple conference calls. Grubhub is a local Chicago company. And I walked them through what I was trying to solve. How do we help these small businesses and how do we do that? And so we all agreed that a half a million dollars would go into a pot. It would be a donation directly to World Central Kitchen. And in turn, World Central Kitchen would place orders of uh, $500,000 value to those restaurants, local restaurants, not chains, that were part of the Grubhub platform. So that was one half of it. The second half of it was finding some of my friends across the country that could help me navigate through local communities that I didn't have awareness of. In fact, about 20 minutes ago, I did a program with Pharrell Williams in Chesapeake, Virginia. And I uh, did a, a program with Kristen Bell in California and Alex Rodriguez in Miami and Matthew McConaughey in Texas, because we really want to create awareness about this potential problem that needs to be solved. And so when we get on with these small local restaurants, like we just did a few minutes ago, we talk to them about where their business is, what their needs are, and we place a large order. And in fact, in some cases, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 meals with the understanding that they're going to in turn find people in their community through their church, the community center, Meals on Wheels, or World Central Kitchen to execute this. The program is specifically designed in, in most parts to skew towards seniors. And when I think about the seniors in our community that don't have the ability to leave their home because of COVID or because of their health or because of some sickness, I'm trying to ask people questions and not getting answers. Who's taking care of these seniors that have been loyal citizens of our country and aren't getting the food that they need? And so this million dollars is done is meant to do nothing more than start the idea, fire start it. I obviously can't solve this by myself, but I'm scared. I'm not going to lie to you. You're scared that Chicago is going to lose its heart and soul, which are the neighborhood restaurants. I used to live in Lake Forest and prior to some of the protests and unrest downtown, I decided to move downtown. And when I look at what's been lost in the suburbs, and whether that's in Hinsdale or Naperville or Lake Forest or downtown Chicago, I'm watching these restaurants drop like flies. And I know that through the summer and in the, in, in the early fall, we were able to sit outdoors and we were able to put tents up and, and all those things were fine and dandy. And I remember saying to my wife while sitting on Rush Street eating a meal, what happens in three months? What happens to the servers? What happens to the food purveyors? What happens to the distributors? What happens to the landlords? I don't think that this is going to solve anything, uh, everything, but I do think it's going to at least start to tackle the issue in my hometown of Chicago. And the consumers can participate by rounding up their orders. How? 
So we did a couple of things. We wanted to create a formal process where they can go on to platingchange.com and partner with myself, Grubhub and World Central Kitchen by making a donation. But separate from that, when they order on Grubhub, they'll be able there's when you check out, you'll be able to actually round up your change. So if your meal is $23.57, you'll be able to roll uh, round it up to the nearest dollar. That change goes into a pot. It goes directly to World Central Kitchen. And then World Central Kitchen has the mandate to order their food from these local restaurants. But it doesn't require you to go through there. And think about you and I going into a local restaurant in Naperville. We can walk into a restaurant and say, listen, I'd like to buy a meal for somebody out there or somebody at my church or for Meals on Wheels. It really is just about providing food. And because of COVID, Fran, the food banks are struggling to find food. And what we normally see this time of year is at local retailers and offices, you see all these food drives. We don't have that happening at the same rate. And so I really wanted to try to solve two problems with the most important problem being taking care of small business and in turn them feeding people. And when you place these large orders on restaurants, they will get the benefit of some of it, even though some of the food goes elsewhere, right? Yes. So they get the benefit of all of the revenue. If I place a $20,000, $30,000 order, I'm picking a specific SKU at their restaurant, an item that uh, allows them to maintain their margins. It's it's a a menu item that, quite frankly, has a full balance. So it has maybe a rice or a pasta with some veggies and a protein so that we're serving the kind of food that allows a senior or those that are food insecure to get a well-balanced meal. And then in turn, they're able to send that food out. And so we don't want to hurt the restaurants. We're not asking them to dip into their pockets. We're asking them just to process the orders. How very tough the restaurant business is in the best of times. You've been in the business yourself. You know how tough this pandemic has been on restaurants in Illinois. They've been forced to close their dining rooms now for a second time. What is your best advice to these restaurants on how they need to adapt to stay alive? In a lot of cases, because I've had a lot of local Chicago restaurants reach out to me, they're going to have to do, I think, two principal things. One, they're going to have to modify a takeout or delivery menu that allows them to maintain their margins and makes it easy for a customer to choose. I think the second thing is you'd be surprised how many restaurants don't have websites or don't have delivery services as part of their DNA. And you can't move fast enough. And what's interesting, Fran, so many restaurants have complained to me over the years, these food delivery companies take too much money from our revenue. And the reality of it is that if the grub hubs of the world hadn't existed through this pandemic, I don't know how these restaurants would even still be open today. They're able to at least capture some revenue. Conversely, I don't know how consumers, when we were totally locked down, other than going to the grocery store, would be accessing foods. I'm grateful to these technology-based food connectors, as I like to call them. But for those restaurants that don't have the right takeout menu and don't have the uh, connectivity to consumers, if you don't solve that quickly, I don't know that you'll make it. As an entrepreneur, as well as anybody, that with hardship and tough times comes opportunity. What opportunities has this pandemic created for the clever business person other than to get into the face mask business? 
I'm so glad you said that. The face mask business is is <laughs> probably over manufactured at this point. I actually think, believe it or not, and people are stunned when I say this is the best time ever to start an online type business. And you can be making jewelry at your kitchen table as a mompreneur and you're working with companies like Etsy to get your products out there. Or you can be bringing your company to the 21st century by bringing it and making it digital. But I think what we've learned through this process is that brick and mortar is not going to go away completely. But if you're solely relying on somebody walking in your front door through this time, I, I think it's going to be tough. And so we want people to be very clever. We want them to have a lot of ingenuity. But we don't want them to rely on making face masks or expecting people to walk through the doors. Here are the kind of things that I do think are interesting. Cleaning services, learning centers, teaching. Uh, I call it, what do they call that when you, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank. But if tutoring you were, um, or... tutoring, thank you, Fran. Thank you. Tutoring <laughs> and a variety of other things. But I also think that there are types of, my wife's in the fashion business. She's had to pivot her whole business away from dressy tops and dresses to casual clothes and jeans and sweatshirts and sweatpants. She's had to pivot. And so it really just requires people to understand what do consumers want right now and how are they going to pivot their business for it? In some cases, it requires a reinvention of your entire business. You were born in Beirut during the Civil War there. You were abandoned in an orphanage when you were four days old. How did that, did it fuel your incredible drive and ultimate success, do you think? I think really the reality of it is that I wake up every day super grateful that this country, because of the men and women that not only served in the armed forces, but our civil servants, provided a landscape and a, plain, a clean canvas for me to be able to live out my dreams. But a lot of people have dreams and a lot of people have an appetite to do things. And I think it was this very strict upbringing that my parents had for me here and my desire to give back and my desire to prove something. I'm an only child. The longer you talk to me, the more obvious it'll be that I'm an only child. I, I just think it's my love of this country and my desire to be a capitalist. I'm a capitalist but I'm a conscious capitalist. And I think that's somewhat missing in America today. And do you feel somewhat like you won the lottery? You were adopted as an infant by a couple living in Miami. Your adoptive dad was Greek. Your mom was from Lebanon. Your grandfather owned two of the largest Chevy dealers in the United States. You met Lee Iacocca through him, or it was a family friend anyway. Do you feel as if you won the lottery a little bit? I feel like I was always blessed, but to be totally candid, while I'm grateful for my adoptive parents, which are my parents, that's how I refer to them, and my extended family, I think my life really changed when I got married. And I've been married for about, uh, gosh, two or three years now. I always forget, three years. And I really met somebody who's a local Chicago resident who really gave me balance. And I think as I was growing up, I was always so driven to work. I didn't have the balance in my life. I wasn't really focused on the right things. I was making choices that, quite frankly, were a bit selfish. And I think I really needed somebody to check me. And so if I won any lottery, it was the spouse lottery. Not because I love the death and because she's amazing, but because she really got me centered on a focus about other people even more than I already was and reminded me that material things are nice to build towards, but they're better to give away. 
And that was, for me, I think was a big deal. How how did the whole The Prophet come about? I read that you were a uh, contestant on Celebrity Apprentice with Guess Who. And is that how it led to your TV career or what happened there? No, I did an episode of a show called Secret Millionaire in 2008 and, and really enjoyed the process. And I was studying what was wrong in our economy. And I had always been a fan of CNBC, and CNBC had been known for profiling public companies, the high-yield market, bonds, stocks, all the big business things. And I, I created, with a couple of other people, this show idea that really would put small business at the forefront. And at the time, Shark Tank had just started, which was a really great opportunity to show people aspirational opportunity, where they can see the chance to grow their business and and have people invest in them. But I never felt like it told the whole story, like Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. And the rest of the story behind business isn't the goods and services that exist in the business, it's the families and the third generation businesses and the startups and the partnerships gone good and the partnerships gone bad. And I felt like the young people of America, the kids in high school and the college kids really needed to get reframed about what the American dream was all about. American dream isn't about flying in a private plane and driving a fancy car. It's about having a nice family with a white picket fence with 174 payments left on your first home with the ability to educate and feed your family and own your own business, even if it's the shoeshine business. I also wanted to remind people the importance of the good old-fashioned handshake. And we had gotten to the point as a society that everything had to be done with lawyers and accountants and representatives, and I'm going to sue you, and I'm going to do this. And in the old days, at least I remember my grandfather telling me, they used to be able to walk into a store or a restaurant and put it on the tab and shake somebody's hand and do a deal, and that was good enough, and the transaction would happen. And so it was really important to me to show people that business is about relationships and relationships are about trust and trust is about doing what you say you're going to do. And I made that my mission and I've invested over $75 million since I started the profit of my own money. And it's my commitment to society. It's this giant social experiment. And while I hope to make money, there are plenty of times where it doesn't work out but it is my contribution to humanity in this country, asking them to think differently about business, differently about people, and differently about relationships. It strikes me in so many of your episodes that what makes a business struggle oftentimes is a family issue, a family problem that is unresolved and plays out through the business. More often than not, the genesis of problems start with strife at home and more fa- more small businesses are owned by families because they need all the family members to work there. They can't afford to pay other people. And the lines get very blurry when you try to separate out what happens at work and what happens at the dinner table. Thanksgiving can become unbelievably uncomfortable. And over the years, I think working in my own family's business, I realized the perils of it. And I also realized the blessings of it because there's not always, there's always good things inside of everything. But if there's not an outsider that can mediate 
and that can delineate between fact and fiction, and it can sit people down and get them to think differently, it can be explosive. And we've seen a lot of families over the years uh, get torn apart by business. And I wish I had the secret sauce, the secret recipe to fix it. But at the end of the day, it really is about respect. And sometimes families just need to be separated. A lot of these parents hire the kids. The kids never work for anybody else. They have a sense of entitlement. They want to be the president of the company tomorrow and make a million dollars. And they forget that's not how their parents started. And the good old-fashioned work ethic that you and I used to has eroded to a degree. People want to get rich quick, and they want to be in charge quick. And unfortunately, that's just not how life works. Tell us about works. Lee Iacocca and how he helped you and mentored you. I read that he told you to create the largest RV chain because that yep. business model was fractured. How did you yeah. meet him, and what did he tell you, and what advice did you take from him? So I have some great stories. Lee, Lee and Iacocca had always been very good friends with my family. And he and my grandfather socialized in the same circles. And for years, I knew him as a kid. And I would see him at family events, big St. Jude charitable events and things of that nature. As I started to mature, I took my first job at a company called AutoNation, which was owned by Chicago's owned Wayne Heisinga, as you remember from Oak Brook. Oh, yeah. And Wayne's Wayne. That's right. And Wayne was a huge management. Exactly. Okay. Wayne was a blockbuster video. Wayne was a huge mentor and he had a nice relationship as well with Lee. And so I was working at AutoNation and Lee Iacocca had been in the later years of his career, but was on the board of a very small RV company. And the reason he was on that board is that he was trying to create an electric bike company. Go figure. Many, like Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, trying to create electric bikes. And that ended up flopping. But Lee was on that board and he called me one day and said, son, I need you to travel out to California. And I was making great money at AutoNation. I liked my job. I was happy. And when Lee Iacocca calls, you get on a plane and you go. So I flew out to Beverly Hills. I flew out to Los Angeles, drove to his beautiful house in Bel Air, and pulled up to the house. I had not been there before. Big palatial house through the gates. Housekeeper opens the door. I go inside. Lee's waiting in his library, as he would call it. And I walk into the room. And if you can picture these giant mahogany walls, four of them with a very small doorway. And I walk into the room. I'd never seen anything like this in my whole life. And there must have been 400 picture frames on the walls. Same frame, same size. Okay. And in the, on these frames were pictures of him. And I thought <laughs> I it was a little odd. <laughs> I thought it was a little odd. And I, I chuckled to myself, but would never say anything. And he said, what are you chuckling about? I said, oh, I, d- I just thought it was, I think it's nice that you have, he said, you think it's weird that I have all these pictures of me. And I said, no, sir. No, sir. I don't think it's weird. No, sir. I did think it was weird, by the way. Uh, and he said to me, let me tell you why I do it. It reminds me every day when I wake up where I came from. It reminds me of my journey. It reminds me of who helped me get there. So I never forget to thank them. And it reminds me when I failed. And it reminds me when I did good. And he said, how many picture frames do you have? And I said, no, sir, I don't have any pictures of myself. And he said, you know what? I guarantee you, if you follow my lead within a year, you'll be on the cover of a magazine. 
So he said, I want you to leave the car business. I want you to leave your $750,000 a year job as a 26 year old. And I want you to join me in this RV company that I have. And this RV company is going to be great. And everybody's getting into RVs and this is going to be big. And I'm smitten with him. I'm looking at him thinking, okay, this is Lee Iacocca telling me to do this. You don't argue with him. Rather than doing a lot of due diligence and rather than being an astute business person, I fell in awe of his request and I decided to leave this company that I love called AutoNation and I went to work for this publicly traded, very small company. Took the job. My first day, I get a call from the banker that financed the company. And the banker said to me, I have good news and bad news. I said, what's that, sir? He said, the bad news is that the company's in default on all their loans. The good news is it's your first day and hopefully you'll figure out how to solve it. So I went into the CFO and I said, why is the banker calling me and telling me that the company's in default? He says, oh yeah, we don't have any money. And I stood there and I said, wait a minute. I'm now the CEO of a NASDAQ traded company at 27 years old that is in default of its loans and has no cash. And when the thing goes bad, it's going to be my name on the bottom line. So I spent the next two years learning how to work a company out of the situation. I redid the bank deals. I figured out how to raise capital. I sold things. I closed things. I opened things. It was like a, it was almost like learning how to be a firefighter on your first day without even training and the house is on fire and you're in the middle of it. I called him up and I said, Lee, how come you didn't tell me this? He said, it's not my fault. You didn't do your due diligence. He said, but I guarantee you, you're going to learn something. Fast forward two years later, and I was able to break the company up, pay all the creditors back, and wind the company down. And I get a call from the two banks that were the lenders to the company. And they said to me, congratulations, thank you so much for paying us back. You did an amazing job. We want to offer you a $50 million line of credit so you can get back into the RV business the right way. We trust you. And that $50 million loan has now turned into a $5 billion plus business known as Chicago's own Camping World. Camping That's the world. public company today. Wow. Yeah. And the RV business is doing just fine. Thank you very much right now, isn't it? Thank you very much. But it was doing fine before COVID, but COVID, I think, brought it to the forefront in people's minds. And it's a business that I've been in for you know almost 20 years now and super grateful and Quite frankly, I owe a lot to Lee Iacocca. And as Lee used to say to me, the RV industry owes Lee Iacocca a lot for bringing Marcus to the table. So it worked out well. And how many pictures of yourself do you have? (laughs) (laughs) I've been on the cover of a few magazines. I'm talking Uh, about in your house, in your den. (laughs) The only pictures I have are of my wife and I'm still not vain enough to put a picture up of myself in a magazine. But usually when I get a cover of a magazine, because I've been on Inc. and and Forbes and a bunch of other ones, I throw them in the trash. They make me uncomfortable. Before we go, Marcus, you graduated from Marquette in 1995. You returned to Florida and ran as a Democrat for the Florida House. And you did pretty well, even though you lost that race. Will you ever run for public office again? You never have to say never. You should never say never in life. But I feel like I'm able to accomplish 
so much more doing what I do today. And between the foundation that I set up, which is $50 million dedicated specifically to underserved communities and underserved individuals and the new learning center and all these initiatives, I don't know if I would get that same flexibility as a public servant. If, I, if you ask me, what do I want to be when I grow up? I would say I would like to be the president of a university. That would be, that is a lifelong goal of mine. And I would rather be a president of, the, of a university than the governor of Florida, even though I think I could be a pretty damn good governor of Florida. Or the president of the United States. I can't be that uh, because I'm not born in this country, but, and I probably have too many skeletons in my closet for that, but I like doing just what I'm doing right now and helping teach people. I think that's more fulfilling than anything. Marcus Limonis, thank you so very much for joining us. Keep up the good work, both on the CNBC front and the uh, philanthropic front. And I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving with your wife. Thank you, friend. Bye-bye. And we will see you all next week. 